Morning. So good to be with you all again today, and uh, it's great to see Blake here. Thank you, Lord. Been praying for him. I know you guys have as well, and my guess is, Blake, if you're like me, when I was preaching regularly, I was sort of, after two or three weeks of not preaching, I was like an alcoholic with the shakes, and it's like I needed to preach, and so I'm sure you're <laughs> you're ready to get back into it. Um, one of the scariest moments I've ever had took place back in 1980. I walked into my boss's office with a money bag. It contained over $1,000. I plopped it down on his desk and began to cry. Carl Harvey had been my employer on and off for six years during my years of college. He was a fine boss. We had a good relationship. In fact, he was a fellow Christian. That is part of what made this meeting with him so difficult. I asked him, do you remember five years ago when someone broke into your shop and stole $800 and the police never found the thief? And Carl nodded yes. And then I said, I am that thief, Mr. Harvey. I, um, I sinned against you. I stole your money. I'm extremely sorry. And I'm here to pay it back with interest and ask you to please forgive me. If you want to prosecute me, we can go down to the police station now, I'll give a full confession, but will you please forgive me? Carl was stunned. He had no idea. I was one of the employees he trusted the most. He began to cry, and we embraced, and he gladly forgave me. I had been covering up that sin for five long years. Oh, it had long been confessed and forgiven by our Lord, But I knew I needed to make things right with the man that I had wronged, and I am ashamed to say that it took me five years to do it. When we blow it spiritually, we all want forgiveness, don't we? In fact, we all need forgiveness. There's a Spanish story of a father and a son who became estranged. The son ran away, and the father set off to find him. He looked for months and months to no avail. So in one last-ditch effort to locate his son, the father put an ad in the Madrid newspaper. It read like this. Dear Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. On that Saturday, scores of Pacos showed up at the Madrid newspaper (laughs) looking for love and forgiveness from their dads. We all want forgiveness. Our passage in the Word of God this morning is all about the value of repentance and forgiveness. It talks about the incredible from covering up um, your sin and remaining silent like I did for five years with my boss. It also talks about the amazing joy that comes from confessing and making things right and being forgiven. I can't describe how good I felt when I came clean with Carl and he forgave me. Many of you, many of us know how good it feels to come clean with God and be totally forgiven through Christ. It's like this huge weight is lifted, right? Let's learn some valuable lessons this morning about repentance and forgiveness. So, Bibles, turn with me, please, to Psalm 32, sort of the middle of the Old Testament book of Psalms, chapter 32. And I think an outline for the passage is on the back of your bulletins. Psalm 32 is a a psalm of praise and thanksgiving and joy. 
It begins with the phrase, blessed is the one, and it ends in verse 11 with the phrase, be glad in the Lord and rejoice. It's not very hard to find the reason for the psalmist's joy here. He tells us in the first two verses. Please follow as I read. Blessed is the one whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So what's the reason for the psalmist's exuberance here? It's very simple. He had done something terribly wrong. Eventually he came to realize how terrible it really was. He confessed his sin and repented of it and God forgave him. There's nothing like forgiveness to make the heart sing and the soul rejoice. And who do you suppose is the author of this song? Most of your Bibles tell you right there at the top. It's, it's, it's David. And yeah, the same David of David and Goliath fame who eventually became the king of Israel. Of course, there are few people better able to speak on the topic of forgiveness than David. See, one of the disadvantages of being a character in the Bible is that your life, both the good and the bad, are splashed on the pages of Scripture for everyone to read. And thus, most of us know we are familiar with sin. We know about how, as king, he, he looked down from the roof of his palace one day, and he saw a beautiful woman bathing on the rooftop of another home. Her name was Bathsheba. He lusted after her and sent for her and committed adultery with her and became pregnant. To cover up his sin, he had her husband killed on the front line of battle so that he could take Bathsheba to be his own wife. Murder, adultery, and stealing another man's wife. For most of us, it doesn't get any worse than that, right? Those are three of these. Can you imagine the guilt and shame David must have felt? Some of you here today have probably committed one of those biggies. Others of you would not dream of doing such a hideous thing. But please don't think that just because you haven't committed one of the biggies, you're somehow less in need of God's forgiveness or that Psalm 32 doesn't apply to you this morning. The reason I say that is the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember in that famous sermon, Jesus is preaching, and out in the audience that day was a group of proud, self-righteous religious leaders who thought they were so holy because they had not committed one of the biggies. And our Lord blows them away when he says in his sermon, you think you're so because you haven't physically murdered someone. But I tell you that if you've ever been really angry with your brother, or you've cursed at him, or you've had hatred in your heart. You're just as guilty as a murderer in God's eyes. You've killed them on the inside. And you think you're so righteous because you have not physically slept with another man's wife. But I tell you, if you've even thought about it, and you've, it, and you've lusted after another woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Now, my friends, those are devastating words to every single one of us here this morning. Romans 23 is so true when it says that all of us have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. You see, our holy God is not only concerned with outer actions. He is also concerned with, concerned with sins of the heart. He's concerned with our inner thoughts and desires and motives and attitudes. There are a lot of people who would not dream of committing murder externally. But their hearts are filled with anger, bitterness, and hatred and resentment. 
There are people who would never dream of committing adultery, but they've already done it inwardly through lusting. How many millions today are addicted to Internet pornography? There are people who would never break into their neighbor's house and steal. But they have stolen in their hearts as they have envied and 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 zealously desired what their neighbor has, whether it's a home or a car or a spouse or kids or job, etc. You see, none of us even come close to God's perfect standard of righteousness. And so in a very real way, Psalm 32 here applies to all of us this morning. At various points in our lives, all of us have committed the biggies. If not externally, we have in our hearts. And thus we stand in desperate need of God's mercy, cleansing, and forgiveness. And that is what is so exciting about Psalm 32 here. Did you know that David uses three different words, Hebrew words, for sin in the first two verses? The first part of verse 1, if you notice, the word transgressions in the ESV. And then the last part of verse 1 is the word sin. And then verse 2, there's the word iniquities. Three different Hebrew words. Why three different words? Well, I think it is to show that no matter what sin you've committed, God can forgive it. I've had people say to me over the years, Jeff, you don't know what I've done in the past. There is no way God could forgive me. Psalm 32 is written by a murderer, adulterer, and wife stealer, and yet he is still singing the praises of God's forgiveness. There is no sin too great for God to forgive. Is that not great news? (laughs) And it gets even better when you understand actually what God does with our sins after we repent. The word forgive there in verse 1 literally means carried away. It is was used in the Old Testament. Now, most of you are familiar with the term scapegoat. When a college or professional sports team loses most of its games, something has to be done. Now, the reason for their losing might be they don't have any good players. But you can't get rid of all the players. So something else or someone else has to be blamed. They usually fire the head coach, right? He became, becomes the scapegoat. In other words, he is made responsible for the shortcomings of the whole team. Do you know where the idea of scapegoat originated? Yeah, it was part of the Hebrew system of sacrifice and forgiveness in the Old Testament. A literal goat would be selected by the high priest and he would lay his hands on the head of the goat confessing over that goat the sins and transgressions and iniquities of the Jewish people, thereby in a ceremonial fashion putting the weight of the sin on that goat. And then the goat would be sent away into the wilderness never to return. And thus the children of Israel had a graphic of how God puts our sins away from him as far as the is from the west. Psalm 103 says he remembers them no more. That is the basic meaning behind this word forgive that David uses in verse 1. Since Christ came, there was no more need for animal scapegoats. Get this, Jesus came our scapegoat once and for all. Spiritually speaking, we were all a bunch of losers on a losing team. But Jesus, as our scapegoat, took the blame for our sins. He not only took the blame, but he died in our place, enduring God's wrath and judgment that we deserved so that our sins could be carried away forever and we would have eternal life. 
And as a result, if you notice, verse 1 says, our sins are covered. And verse 2 says, blessed is the man that, whose God no longer counts his sin against him. That's glorious news. Now, this doesn't mean that God removes all of the consequences for our sin. Many of us here this morning are still paying consequences for past sins. And sometimes we suffer consequences for a lifetime. But through Christ, God does remove the guilt and condemnation and penalty our sins deserve. And he restores us back into an intimate relationship with him. It's called reconciliation. And through Christ, those of us who are in Christ, we will never face his ultimate eternal judgment. That is why, why Romans 8 verse 1 says this. There is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Try to wrap your mind around that thought. Not one tiny bit of condemnation. My brothers and sisters in Christ, you will never face God's wrath and judgment for your sins that you deserve because Jesus faced it in your place as your substitute. That's the best news you have ever heard, whether you realize it or not. You can understand why David is so overjoyed in this psalm at the thought of having all of his sins forgiven and carried away forever, especially the biggies. But the story doesn't end there. The Bible clearly teaches there is a prerequisite before we can experience this incredibleness I just described. And in fact, the large majority of the human race will never experience this forgiveness, then they will die in their sins and spend eternity separated from God. Why? Because the Bible teaches in order to be forgiven by God, you must first of all humbly repent and confess your sins to God and be willing to turn from your sins with God's help. We see David's repentance in verse 5. Skip down. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Jesus continually emphasized the necessity of repentance for salvation. One time he said this in Luke 13, 3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. And then he sent the disciples out in groups of two to minister into the community. And Mark 6, verse 12 describes their mission assignment like this. They went out and preached that people should repent. Luke 5.32, Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Acts 17, verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And on and on it goes. Repentance is not a popular topic these days. But since it is so to salvation, I think it is good for all of us to understand what it means. The Greek word for repentance throughout the New Testament is the word metania. It literally means a change of mind. In other words, you mentally agree with God that you are a sinner who deserves his judgment. But it doesn't stop in the true repentance. It's in a change of heart and a change of direction, and it also involves sorrow over sin. I, had, I, I was wanting to, I didn't get the sermon notes to you guys, but I had some verses here. Keep your finger here. I'd like you to turn over to Second um, Corinthians 7, verse 10, because it's an important verse about repentance. So we'll come back to Psalm 32, but go over to Second Corinthians 7. 
verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Some of have the word sorrow instead of grief. Back in the 1980s, I worked at the Billy Graham Crusade when it came to Denver. I was a counselor down on the football field at the old Mile High Stadium. As with most crusades after the service, scores of people came down to the field to receive Christ. For some of the people, you could tell by the somber look on their faces that they were experiencing deep conviction over their sins. Some were even crying. Others, however, were laughing and joking with each other as they walked down together. It was sort of like the cool thing to do to go down on the football field after the Ram Crusade. But there was no godly sorrow over their sin. And thus, no true repentance and no salvation, at least on that day. As 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 puts it, it's godly sorrow that accompanies true repentance, which leads to salvation. And so one question we have to ask ourselves in trying to determine whether or not our repentance is genuine is, are we truly sorrowful over our sin? And I realize that some people are more emotional than others, and I'm not suggesting that you have to be weeping and wailing over your sin all the time. But are you heartbroken? Does your sin grieve you? In that other great psalm of repentance that David writes, Psalm 51, verse 17, he says this, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So when we sin, the sacrifices that are pleasing to God are a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And here's what's scary. Even if you are sorry, that doesn't necessarily mean you're truly repentant. You see, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 mentions two types of grief or sorrow. Godly sorrow that leads to salvation and worldly sorrow that leads to death and destruction. What's the difference between those two sorrows? I've had people sitting in my office as a pastor weeping over their sins, swearing they will never do that again. And there's not one tiny bit of true repentance in their hearts. So when you feel sorry, you've done, how do you know whether it is genuine repentance or not? That's a great question, is it not? I think we get a clue in this verse. Let me read it. And some other verses like it. Acts 26, verse 20. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. So one way we prove our repentance is genuine is by our deeds. That is, by turning from sin and turning to obey God in his strength. People who cry over their sin, but there's no life change, and they go right back out and do the same sin again fairly quickly, they aren't truly repentant. That's worldly sorrow. And all of us have experienced and been guilty of worldly sorrow, have we not? They may be crying because they got caught or they feel enslaved or they have to pay the consequences for their sin. And they hate the consequences for their sin. They don't like it, but they're not truly heartbroken. 
Once you are truly repentant with godly sorrow, it will be a turning from your sin to obey God and follow him. As Paul says in Acts 26.20, you will turn to God and prove your repentance by your deeds. And you will be willing to be accountable to others. You will hate your sin so much that you are willing to do anything to overcome it. I have had numerous men over the years who gave me full access to their phones and computers. And I could see every website they went to so that they could break the addiction to pornography. They were willing to do anything to have Pastor Jeff know what they're looking at. People who are truly repentant stop rationalizing. They stop justifying it. They stop blaming others. They take full responsibility and they want to be done with it. Hear me well this morning. All of us will continue to struggle every day until the day we die. We fall down and we get up. We fall down and we get up. But when we get up in true repentance... We turn from our sin to obey God. Now, we see the necessity of repentance clearly here in Psalm 32. I want you to notice that the person in verses 1 and 2 is not blessed just because their sins are forgiven. He is also blessed because of that last phrase in verse 2. Look at the last phrase in verse 2. In whose spirit is no deceit. Blessed is the one in whose spirit is no deceit. What does David mean by that phrase? Well, he goes on to tell us in the very next phrase. Verse 3, first phrase. When I kept silent. Stop right there. You see, David was not immediately repentant after his sin with Bathsheba. For a temporary period of time, and we don't know how long it was. Some scholars suggest as long as 18 months. David tried to cover up his sin. His spirit was filled with deceit, as verse 2 says. He did not confess his sin, but rather he remained silent. And verses 3 and 4 describe this painful episode in his life. Look at verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. This is probably figurative language here to describe the physical and emotional anguish that comes from unrepentant sin. Unconfessed sin, unrepentant sin, robs the Christian life of joy. Have you noticed? That's why in that other famous prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, David cries out to God, Please give me back the joy of your salvation. I have lost my joy and I want it back. Speaking personally, some of the most miserable times in my life as a Christian have have been times when I have strayed from God in unrepentant sin. Can any of you relate? Verse 4. For day and night and was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. Nothing can be so physically, emotionally, and spiritually draining for Christians as unconfessed sin. Your hand was heavy upon me, David says. That's a reference to the disciplining hand of God. Hebrews 12 is so clear that God disciplines his wayward children whom he loves. And in fact, that chapter goes on to say very clearly that if you can keep on sinning and sinning and sinning, and God doesn't discipline you, it's a sign that you're not one of his children. You're illegitimate. God's spankings are quite painful, aren't they? 
The pain, anguish, and discipline of, on David was relentless. Verse 3 says here, he groaned all day long. Verse 4 says, day and night your hand was heavy upon me. You see, God will not stop his loving discipline until it accomplishes his good purposes in our lives and brings us back to him. He's the loving shepherd. And when one of the sheep stray, he goes out and he brings it back. And he keeps pursuing and he brings us back. Aren't you thankful he does that? And this discipline did accomplish its good purpose in David's life. It drove him to repentance. Look again at verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. After a time of suffering, anguish, and discipline from the Lord, living in deceit and silence, David finally came to his senses. He acknowledged his sins to God. Of course, God already knows our sin, but there's value for us when we admit to him that we've blown it, right? David continues, I did not cover up my iniquity. That that deceit that was in his heart vanished. And thus he confessed his sin to God, and he may have even made a public confession to people. What happened next? God graciously, swiftly, and gladly forgave his sins and gave him back the joy of his salvation. And that is why he is singing in this song. And isn't that exactly what we see in the famous verse, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I realize there's some theological debate today among some Christians who believe that once we are saved, we no longer need to confess our sins and ask for forgiveness. I, I disagree with that position. I believe that 1 John 1, 9 here applies to believers and unbelievers. There is great value in Christians and non-Christians confessing their sins. For non-Christians, confession and repentance leads to faith and salvation. For Christians, it leads us back to intimacy with our God and the joy of our salvation restored. Perhaps you are here this morning and you've never sincerely confessed your sins to God and asked for forgiveness. Oh, you may have had worldly sorrow in the past, but not godly sorrow. For many people today, they don't see their need to repent. They, they are outwardly moral. Many are even religious. There are millions today who attend church regularly. They pray, they give, they help other people. They're hard workers. They think, I'm not such a bad person compared to murderers, rapists, and child abusers. If that describes you, I send you of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. If you've ever been really angry with someone or hated him or her in your heart, you're just as guilty as a murderer in God's eyes. You've killed them on the inside. If you've ever lusted after another person, you are guilty of adultery in your heart. Every man here this morning has committed adultery. I can promise you that. And a lot of women have. In their hearts. If you have ever had feelings of resentment or envy or jealousy or revenge or you've had thoughts of worry and ungratefulness, if you've ever loved anyone or anything more than you've loved God, you've committed adultery. It's cosmic treason. And all of those sins the Bible teaches and many more separate you from God and cause you to desperately need his forgiveness. And in order to receive that forgiveness, you need to humble yourself and repent as Jesus taught so often. And in fact, he said in Luke 13, if you don't repent, you will perish. 
And after repentance, the Bible teaches you must have faith. Accepting what Jesus did on the cross is a full payment for all of your sins. Jesus must become your scapegoat and your sin bearer. No one or nothing on the planet will get you to heaven but Christ. Biblical Christianity is not about what you can do to pay for your own sin and earn your entrance into heaven. Biblical Christianity is about what someone else did, Jesus, to take your place. And he paid a debt you could not pay so that you could have eternal life and be reconciled to your creator. And the great news is it doesn't matter how badly you've blown it. As we've already noted, Psalm 32 is written by an adulterer, murderer, and wife stealer, and yet he is singing because he's been forgiven. God is more than willing to forgive the worst sinner if they will come to him in humble repentance and faith. Run to Jesus this morning. If you don't know him, run to Jesus this morning. Not long before she died in 1988, in a moment of surprising candor on television, one of England's best-known secular humanists, atheist, and novelist, Maganita Lasky, said this, and I quote, What I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me, unquote. How tragic is that? Can you imagine having to go your whole life carrying the weight and shame and guilt of all of your sin? (laughs) Aren't you thankful that we have someone to forgive us this morning and remove our sins as far as the east is from the west from God? And so did Mrs. Lasky if she would have only acknowledged and cried out to him in humble repentance and embraced Jesus as her Lord and Savior. But most people are too proud to do that. Talking about here this morning is takes humility and brokenness. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. So that is the forgiveness that's available to those of you here today who don't know Christ. However, my guess is that most of us here today are Christians. We've experienced this initial cleansing and forgiveness. We've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And yet, as you know, it is possible for Christians to stray from God, sometimes far from God for temporary periods of time like David does. Perhaps that's where you are this morning. You're here in church, but if the truth be known, your heart is far from God. That phrase in verse 2 describes you. There is deceit and hypocrisy in your spirit. You have been indulging in sin and covering it up. Few, if any, people know about it. And if the truth be known, you are miserable, like David describes in this psalm. And I don't know. I don't know your stories. (laughs) But my guess is in a group this size, this describes someone here or maybe a few people here. If that describes you this morning, it's time for you to do what David did and come clean. You have been living in deceit and hypocrisy long enough. It's time for you to move from the misery of verses 3 and 4 of our text to the joy of verses 1 and 2 and verse 5. It's time to stop hiding and being silent about your sin and openly confess it. And that certainly means confessing it to God in true repentance and asking for forgiveness. But there is also great value in confessing your sins to others. Turn here since I don't, you don't have it in your bull. And go, go to James 5.16 in your Bibles. James, Hebrews, it's toward the end of your Bibles. If you find Hebrews, it's right after that. 
you get a revelation, you've gone too far, right? James 5.16. James writes, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. It could be that some of you here today need to do what I did with my boss back in 1980. You have wronged someone in the past and you've never made it right. And it could be God is nudging you this morning to go to them and confess your sins and ask for forgiveness and maybe even pay restitution if need be. I, I don't know. God doesn't move all of his children to do that. He did that with me. And I know that sounds scary right now. But I'm here to tell you there's incredible healing and joy that comes from doing that. I mean, I say this to my shame, but that, that, that story that I shared with you at the beginning about paying restitution to my boss, Carl, was not the only time I did that. You see, as a teenager, I got caught up with the wrong crowd, and I became a thief. And we would shoplift, and we would break into people's homes, And we broke into stores at night after they were closed and we stole. And after I got saved and God did a work in my heart, I went back to many of those people that I could remember and and did what I did with Carl and asked for forgiveness and, and, and paid them back restitution. And it was humbling. And a couple of them wouldn't forgive me. But I, I, can't, I can't control that, right? Um, most of them gladly forgave me. But I can tell you this. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 is so true when it says this. True repentance leaves no regret. You will never regret coming clean and confessing your sins to others. And there's also amazing healing that can come from sharing your sinful struggles. Which, by the way, let me tell you, just all to God's glory and grace, that my last stealing episode was with what my boss, Carl. So that was back in, you know, 1975 is when it happened in 1980. So I'm not a thief any longer, by God's grace, just so you know. So I'm not going to go check out where you keep the offering today and, and do all that. And that's all, again, all glory to God, right? He's, he's changing us. He's transforming us. He's helping us. There's also amazing healing that can come from sharing your sinful struggles with others and getting them praying for you. I I talk about this type of transparency often because we need to go there as a church. One of the things I hear from Christians all the time in their churches is they say, it seems like everybody at church has it all together but me. And they come and they smile and it's all good. And here's the here's the deal. None of us have it all together. And we all struggle with sin every day. We need to stop pretending that we do and be honest with our brothers and sisters in Christ. David says here, when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away and I was a miserable man. Some of you have been carrying around guilt and shame for a long time with this secret sin. And it is time for you to break the silence and get your sins out in the open. James 5, 6. 
Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. I've had men and some women sit in my office and they start confessing some of their deepest, darkest garbage for the first time and they get it out. And I pray for them. And I've seen God do a miracle of healing in my office as they just unleashed this garbage and shared it with someone else besides God. James 5.16 Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now, we've got to be careful here. We need to be selective. You need to find another Christian whom you can trust. I recommend same sexes. Men sharing with men and women sharing with women, especially if it's sexual sin. And if someone comes to you and confesses their sins, you don't look down your nose and cluck your tongue like you're somehow better than they are. You are a fellow struggler, right? (laughs) You might not struggle with their sin, but you struggle with your sin. And so you embrace them as a fellow struggler. And they tell you confidential. And you love them and you pray for them. Famed psychiatrist Carl Menninger once said that if he could convince the patients in psychiatric hospitals that their sins were forgiven, 75% of them could walk out the next day healed. Open confession and forgiveness brings great healing. James 5.16 And my desire is for our churches that we would see some more transparency and authenticity as believers. Amen? Authentic transparency. In the right setting for sure. I'm not going to go share in a mixed group some of my deepest, darkest stuff. But in the right setting, maybe, like I say, men with men and women with women... And that's why Proverbs 28.13 says, He who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses, confesses and forsakes them finds mercy. And so I close today by reading to you the first two verses of our great psalm. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit There is no deceit. Let us rejoice that we serve a merciful, forgiving God. And this God loved us so much that he sent his only son to die as our perfect scapegoat and sin bearer so that our sins could be carried away forever as far as the east is from the west. And as a result, there is not one tiny bit of condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Let's run to our scapegoat, Jesus, this morning and worship him. And I think I've gone almost a little over my time. But, you know, I would just say, I, first of all, what a great sermon to lead in communion, right? <laughs> so we remember what our scapegoat did for us. But I would just, let's just ask right now, let's just pray and ask the Lord to uh, help help your church, to help you be thankful for what Jesus has done for you. But if you have a secret sin, if you are covering up, you would have the grace to practice James 5.16. And that this church, Lord, I pray for this church. 
I love this group of believers, Lord. It's just a dear group of saints that you have gathered here. And it's obvious that you're doing a great work. But I just pray for Southwest Congregational Church. That you would help this body of believers to be more authentic and transparent. And sharing their struggles with each other. And loving each other and not just. That can come from that type of humility and brokenness and transparency and prayer. Take this church there, Lord, please. Take, take your church there. And we will give you all of the glory for what you do in us and through us and to us. In the high name of Jesus, our scapegoat and sin bearer and greatest treasure. I pray in his name. Amen. Amen.